how do we understand the historical weight of um, you know, different legal traditions and different moral traditions and different social and civilizational traditions uh, and how they interact with our own American policy and legal debates today. Clearly part of being a Muslim in the modern world and um, trying to continue our very proud and deep intellectual tradition is to think deeply about what, what changes and what stays the same. You know, this isn't the first time that Islamic civilization or Muslims have gone through transformational changes. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Harry Bostromagia. And I'm Mariam Kazmi. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Hassan Shahawi, who was a second-year law student at Harvard Law School. Hassan was recently elected president of the Harvard Law Review, and in addition to being the first Muslim in this position, he is also, as far as we know, the first in it to have expertise in Islamic law. Hassan graduated from Harvard College in 2016 and went on to study at the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, where he earned his master's and PhD in Islamic law. We'll start by talking more generally about the intersection of Islamic law and legal studies, and then in the second part, talk more about Hassan's PhD dissertation on Istihsan in the early Hanafi school. Welcome, Hassan. Congratulations, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I'm so uh, so excited for our conversation today. Great to have you here. Hassan, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you became interested in the study of Islamic law and law more more generally. Absolutely. I, um, I was born in Los Angeles to uh, an Egyptian Muslim family and, you know, grew up um, very much close to my Muslim community here in LA. And our community tended to be more interested in sort of the American Muslim identity, looking forward at um, what Islam in America would look like. And I wasn't too exposed actually to much academic or traditional knowledge of sort of the Islamic sciences as I was growing up. I mean, I had a very um, thoughtful and wonderful mosque community and, you know, very full of, of really wonderful people uh, and very intelligent and thoughtful people who knew the religion very well. But I didn't necessarily know much about the traditional sciences and, and traditional scholarship. When I started uh, as an undergraduate at Harvard, um, I started taking classes, um, you know, in classical Arabic and also in the Boston community started meeting more traditional scholars. Um, and, you know, there were certainly some in L.A. I just hadn't met many of them. And that's when I, I really became interested in this deeper and broader tradition and history uh, of the Islamic sciences and, you know, what we could learn from it um, and keep um, going with us to inspire uh, how we practice Islam uh, in the United States. And that began my journey, and I definitely slowly and slowly became more uh, deeply involved in and, and attached to the, the traditional sciences and studied them traditionally with scholars in Boston. And then when I moved to the UK with scholars in the UK, and I spent some time in, in various Muslim countries uh, studying with scholars there as well. Um, and and that, you know, is really, uh, it was it, it was... My journey, I think, was um, from a Western intellectual tradition to really diving into our own Islamic intellectual tradition and, and learning to find the amazing parallels uh, and the amazing synergies between the two and, and how they've interplayed with each other throughout the years. 
Um, and yeah, I think maybe that sums up um, how I've gotten maybe to, to at least the beginning of my journey. Before we move on, do you mind talking a bit more about how you decided to go to law school after getting your PhD? Yes, sure. I, um, it's funny, I actually knew I wanted to go to law school um, and I went to Oxford originally just planning on a master's and then really loved my project, loved my advisor, Professor Christopher Melchert, you know, had spoken to him about just trying to get my project done and what he thought of it. And he, he seemed to like my project. And so I decided to commit extra time and finish it. Um, but my plan was always to go back to law school. I really wasn't, you know, I'm still not sure if I want to be an academic. I think I'm interested in being per perhaps a legal academic, a law professor, because you're able to do both the academic work and, you know, what you'd call practical work, sort of taking on, you know, you can litigate, you can, a lot of law professors have, um, you know, a pro bono docket on the side where they litigate cases that they're passionate about um, or that they're, you know, actively writing amicus briefs, you know, to, for, for in support of cases that, that they care about. Um, they're involved in clinics, maybe at their law school. Uh, so it, it's, it's a way to maybe straddle the academic and, and the practical and direct services and client-oriented work that I'm also interested in. So I'd always wanted to go back to law school because I'd felt like I wouldn't be satisfied with a purely academic um, career. And I think that's still true. Um, at the moment, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm still, I want to get some litigation experience and, and see what that's like. But that's ultimately why I decided uh, to, to go to law school. And also it is my academic passion. Uh, I've, I've loved studying the law, both Islamic law and other forms of law and legal questions, you know, since undergraduate now. Um, and uh, so even academically, it's been an extremely fulfilling experience. And how did you become interested specifically in the topic of your dissertation, which is called How Subjectivity Became Wrong, Early Hanafism and the Scandal of Istihsan in the Formative Period of Islamic Law? Yes, yeah, the, uh, the title always gets people. I threw the word scandal in there to, to make it a little more exciting. But it's, um, you know, I, I came to it sort of within the journey that I just described in my first answer, clearly part of being a Muslim in the modern world and um, trying to continue our very proud and deep intellectual tradition is to think deeply about, given just the challenges of modernity, you know, the basic questions that many Muslims ask is what, what changes and what stays the same. And in thinking about that and in looking at how previous scholars have handled that same question, you know, this isn't the first time that Islamic civilization or Muslims have gone through transformational changes. So when Muslim scholars have faced uh, profound social change in, in the, you know, many previous centuries in which that happened, whether that's just expansion beyond the Arabian Peninsula, whether that's the Mongol conquests, whether that's, um, you know, the, uh, the conquest of South Asia. I mean, many contexts in which um, Muslims were suddenly confronted with much that was new uh, and also with struggle and defeat. Um, so I think I wanted to see how scholars in those times answered those types of questions because that could inform uh, our own approaches to how we might try to answer those questions. And I found that um, there was a big debate, especially in what I ended up focusing on in the 8th and 9th century, precisely over this mechanism called istihsan, which is really a shorthand, you could say, at least for the Iraqi scholars of the time, um, for what to do when the practicalities of you know, your given time and place might, uh, might make you feel 
like the law needs to change somehow or needs to adjust um, sometimes for you know uh, to to help ease the transition and sometimes to make sure that society doesn't move in a negative direction so it's not always just you know towards the future sometimes it's preservative sometimes we need to adjust the law in response to a social change that is happening that is actually negative and we can get that in you know in more into that later in, in detail uh, but that you know that that really spoke to me and there's so many parallels in those discussions with discussions that Muslims started having having with their confrontations with modernity in the beginning beginning of the 20th century and through today um, the de- debates that the Muslim community is still having over you know how how we uh, continue to adjust and how we do that in a way that is inspired by our tradition and not just either you know ditching the tradition entirely or holding fast to it as as if it never changed you've you've spoken a little bit about this this journey from the western to islamic intellectual uh tradition how do you feel your background in different legal traditions and and particularly as a study of islamic law how do you think that affects your study of law more generally at harvard law school yeah, it, on a superficial level, it was fun. For example, when I took, um, you know, part of the first year curriculum is a required property law course. Um, and in property law in particular, I think it's the area of American law that is most maybe uh, in sync with its medieval origins. You know, a lot of trusts and estates law, a lot of property law just stems from the the medieval English legal tradition. A lot of you know, legal mechanisms and constructs and terms uh, are still sort of old English. And there's a ton of parallel between those and similar concepts in Islamic law. You know, a very simple example is um, the right of, uh, of preemption or, or first purchase, which is, you know, you write into a contract that if, if you buy this from me, but if you choose to sell it, I get to, I have first choice over buying it. You know, you you uh, you give me the right to choose to buy it first. In Islamic law, that's called shufra. It's a well-known property right that, for example, neighbors have, at least in, in the Hanafi school, neighbors neighbors have the right of shufra over their neighbor's property. So if their neighbor wants to sell something, a neighbor has the option to buy it at the same price first. Um, if, you know, and then one neighbor is obligated to tell another when they're, when they're um, selling their property, when they've agreed to sell their property. So that's a superficial example of really interesting parallels um, and in property law in particular, in trust and estates law, those parallels are very interesting because there's some research that's been done on, for example, how university endowments, the origins of university endowments are from Islamic Oqaf and you know, Islamic charitable endowments that funded Islamic uh, institutions and universities. And there's specifically some research linking that to one particular college in Oxford uh, that first adopted the endowment model and how it might have been an import from um, Islamic universities at the time. So various historical parallels. More profoundly, especially given the political you know, reality that we find ourselves in and, and the way that law is so political in the U.S., I think having a background in Islamic law helps me pierce through debates that often seem two-sided, like if you are progressive, you necessarily think this is the correct legal answer, and if you are conservative, you necessarily think that is with a legal tradition that just doesn't abide by America's political spectrum, and so can have often surprising answers. Um, And I've often found that I just, you know, the spectrum ends up not making much sense applied to me. I think we're also coming to a time in American history where it's clear the, the political spectrum isn't quite a spectrum. You know, the far right and the far left are sort of 
it's almost like a circle now. They're kind of meeting and together at some sort of anarchical libertarian version of society. It's, you know, there, there's funny incoherences that are happening at the moment. And for me, coming from an Islamic law background, I, I felt that a lot, that sometimes, you know, Islamic law has a particular thing to say about one thing that would be progressive in the American discourse, and then on another topic is more conservative than the conservatives. And um, there's, you know, there's not one single alignment of opinions that we often have in American politics, where you have maybe two platforms, you're assumed to have an opinion on X because you have an opinion on Y. Um, and I've just found it really helpful for sorting between those debates for myself, being able to take every issue on a case-by-case basis and not see these things as, as necessarily linked or finding other surprising intellectual linkages between, you know, an underappreciated link that if you take the progressive position on, you know, the, the quote-unquote progressive position on X, it actually seems like intellectually or logically you share a premise with the conservative position on Y. Why would that not take you there? And so I've just appreciated the ability to come in with this third perspective that's not so grounded in our own time and place. That's that's actually that's really interesting. And if I could, but if I could just push a little bit more there about just thinking about the in the Islamic legal tradition, there we have several schools of Islamic law, right? Um, and you you've worked on Hanafism, um, but I mean, is do you think the the sort of um, the, the the multiplicity, I guess, of, of uh, legal traditions in in Islamic law somehow plays into uh, the that um, multifaceted perspective you could have or approach, I guess, uh, to to questions in Western law. I think so. Yes, I think what's so interesting about the American legal tradition is you you see a lot of the legal theory debates, jurisprudential debates that lawyers in many legal traditions have had across history, including the Islamic legal tradition, you know, basic tensions between textualism and purposivism and how active a judge should be to, you know, what, what they call judicial activism in American law, how active a judge should be to try to achieve what they think is, is just in a given case. Um, you see those debates, you know, they're foundational. Now we have a court that's now characterized as originalist and there's a big you know, there was a shift from a purposivist to an originalist court, sort of. What I see in that is so interesting is that in, in, in Islamic law, you have those rough differences between the different schools of law, but they always coexisted and there were, you know, there were different judges using those different methodologies in the same courts. And you often had, I mean, there are some famous examples from Memluk Egypt where a scholar, a judge from one school of law when a dispute came before him, knew that his school of law's answer to that dispute wouldn't give the parties, you know, maybe the resolution they were seeking. For example, in a divorce case, a woman whose husband had disappeared in one school of law um, cannot seek annulment of that marriage or, uh, for, for X number of years. In, in another school of law, it's, you know, an entire lifetime. So just there's there's clear situations where clearly the woman, you know, having to not being able to remarry or so on is, is very difficult. And the judge, knowing that that was their school's opinion on that, but seeing that its application in this given case is an ideal and recognizing the validity of the other schools of law would actually recuse himself from the case and say, you'll actually want to take this case before why judge of this other school of law um, because you might be able to get um, a, a better outcome there. And seeing themselves as both you know, mutually I guess, valid and, you know, the famous declaration in Islamic law that 
every sort of um, every mujtahid, which you could call you know every legal thinker, every legal school even um, is correct in the sense that we're all we all have different approaches and are trying at the same thing, but none of us is sure who's getting at exactly the right answer, means that, you know, in the American context, you could imagine a radical situation where the originalist judge knows that the originalist answer in a case is not going to get a party exactly what they, what, you know, people would think of as just. And there are cases where judges say, like, the law um, as applied to this case is unjust, but I am bound, I am bound to the law that's written in some opinions. And you could imagine a case where that judge, knowing that and knowing that a judge who embraces a more purposivist or living constitution or all these other jurisprudential modes that have that have come about in American, you know, legal interpretation in the past 50 years or so, uh, that, you know, a judge could say, well, just go to one of those judges instead. It's, it's a radical idea, one that strikes at the core of how we think American law should be interpreted. Um, but I think that's what's really helpful about coming at it with from the perspective in another legal tradition is there are very different conceptions of how law should work, how legal authority should work, how judgment and how, um, you know, cases themselves should be managed. It would be great if you can tell us more about what your role as president of the Harvard Law Review entails and if you have anything to add about how you think your background in Islamic law is helpful for this role. It's it's funny because when I was first elected, um, you know, there were some funny, I'm not on social media, but my wife told me about some funny tweets where, you know, there were people like, oh, this is the beginning of the Harvard Sharia Review. Uh, and I thought that was funny. I actually, I wanted to get a shirt made that said, uh, you know, H Sheen R, you know, the letter Sheen for Sharia instead of HLR, obviously not going to happen, a little controversial, but, uh, you know, taking it tongue in cheek. Um, but I did in my sort of candidacy uh, when I was speaking to editors about sort of my idea for how what I wanted to bring to the work uh, at Harvard, uh, you know, in the Harvard Law Review, the president is actually not as involved in deciding what articles we publish. For example, in other journals, um, the president sits on the articles committee and you know helps decide what gets published. There's actually a very strong norm against that at the Harvard Law Review. We're a very democratic and egalitarian institution, so we have an articles chair and an articles committee. They do their thing, you know. They they read the articles, they accept them. Um, we have a full body vote actually at the end of the articles process when we're deciding which articles to accept. Every editor, as we have a hundred editors on the body, every editor votes, uh, and that's how we decide uh, at the final stage what to accept. I'm actually, you know, the president and the articles chair aren't allowed to speak at that meeting, uh, even because that's how strong our norms of just kind of democratic decision making and and anti hierarchy are. So my role doesn't come in deciding what to publish, but what the president at the Harvard Law Review does do traditionally is when we do accept an article, um, the president does something called a president's read, which is the first substantive edit pass of an article. Uh, and that is, you know, tends to be a quite a long memo, 10 to 20 pages sometimes, um, of really big picture edits that we suggest to authors uh, counter arguments, new literature to engage with, uh, restructuring, you know, whole sections or, or things like that. And in that role, the president can often have uh, an active voice in, um, you know, pushing the authors to engage with a different set of ideas or even different literature. Um, and, you know, what would the social science take on this argument be? You know, it can really be as big picture as we want. And ultimately, the authors accept and reject um, what they will, you know, it's this is all just editing work to help bring out the author's voice. 
but you know we we sort of provide our own perspective. Uh, in that way, I, I'm really excited about trying to bring more international and comparative uh, perspectives to you know issues that are discussed, especially in American law, sometimes in a very domestic and parochial way. So I remember there was um, you know an article about the usage of uh, debt as a as a means of social welfare in uh, American politics and, and policy. And there's just so much to think about on a, a, on a historical level in terms of the treatment of debt by various societies and various legal systems, uh, the treatment of financial interest in particular. You know, it's not just Islamic law, but Christianity and Judaism that had strong admonitions, if not prohibitions, on usury, and then the definition of what usury is and so on. And so the story of the rise of financial interest in American policy uh, and debt funding as a way of uplifting the middle and lower classes also must grapple with, well, how did, for example, early 20th century or late 19th century Christians view the moral debates around usury? And how did they uh, balance that with uh, the, you know, starting to implement uh, active debt funding as, as a matter of policy? And that necessarily goes further back. Okay, what are the Christian perspectives on usury? And as part of that, what are other social perspectives on usury around the world? Um, and how have other societies used this? If we're criticizing the usage of debt in American society, uh, have other societies also criticized it? Certainly historical ones have. What about moder modern societies? And so um, that's part of what I hope I'm able to bring, a perspective that... Um, is not as maybe domestic as, as some of our American policy debates can tend to be. And of course, that's in a way exactly what <laughs> the people who are worried about the, you know, creeping Sharia, uh, that, you know, this, this would probably terrify them, my statement there. But ultimately, I think um, most would hopefully acknowledge that it's at least good to engage with policy solutions that have worked around the world, especially in the modern world. And then even in terms of, you know, for example, of this debate about financial interest, for example, there was a recent initiative by Bernie Sanders and, uh, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to cap usury at 15%. And some conservatives supported it and tweeted their support of it, citing the traditional biblical pro prohibitions on usury. Um, so this is, you know, this isn't uh, just creeping Sharia. This is how do we understand the historical weight of um, you know, different legal traditions and different moral traditions and different social and civilizational traditions uh, and how they interact with our own American policy and legal debates today. Another example of bringing the Islamic legal perspective into the American context is your article called Judgment and Forgiveness in Texas, the Amber Geiger Case Through the Lens of Islamic Law. Can you tell us a bit about this article and some of the issues that you discussed? The, yeah, the article, I think can exemplify that hopefully or at least you know that's my one of my first attempts at that and we'll see how that develops you know the amber geiger case um, for people who don't remember the name it was big in the news a couple years ago it was the amber geiger was the police officer who entered a, a black man's home and um you know shot him and tragically killed him while he was famously uh, on the couch eating ice cream um and then there was a lot of outrage, you know, justifiably at, at that event. And then there was sort of a second round of outrage when in the trial itself, the judge essentially expressed kindness for Amber Geiger and, and said, you know, we're 
I'm praying for you. And then she hugged Amber Geiger in court. And, and the victim's brother also said that he forgave her and, and hugged her in court. And there was a lot of tension that many people felt between systemic justice, you know, wanting this this event that keeps happening again and again, the, the, the killing of, of black lives by police officers, wanting to see that taken seriously and not um, trivialized and not, you know, looked over and brushed over so quickly again and again. And, the, you know, the ACLU, I think, even had a statement that it's just, you know, the the black perpetrators of these crimes are never treated this way. And, and we treat the uh, white perpetrators of crimes with much more humanity. Um, and so that's what the double standard was really uh, difficult for people. At the same time, you you know, what, what I'm talking about in the article in this tension is you don't want to judge every case on a systemic level and, and lose the, you know, the, the, the case-by-case basis and the sort of individual justice that every person deserves. And that's such a profound tension one that we've seen come up, for example, in the Me Too movement when it comes to the presumption of innocence versus believing women uh, who have been assaulted. Um, you know, how do you balance the two? How do we fairly you know, prosecute a, an individual that might have assaulted a woman when it's so hard for, for women in, in a systemic sense in our society to get justice when they've, been, um, you know, when they've been assaulted in these ways? And so this tension comes up and up. And, and what I tried to do through writing about it through the lens of Islamic law is, is, I guess, show Islamic law's radical take on achieving personal justice in individual instances, which is to try to, you know, there are famous cases of doing all that one can procedurally to avoid punishment, while at the same time finding ways to right the wrongs and do justice to the victims. And so, um, you know, for example, cases where somebody has stolen something, there's, there's a very famous and funny anecdote where a judge tells the thief that essentially everybody knows is the thief to not confess to the crime because nobody at that point wanted the, the even the victim was like, it's okay, just give me my stuff back. I don't want that person to be punished. But obviously there's a law on the books that punishes theft. And so the judge just says to the, um, to the purported thief or, you know, who probably is the thief, uh, says to him, uh, just confess. It's actually a, a woman in this case. Says to her, uh, just you know, say that you uh, say don't say that you stole, but say that that property is that person's. And so that way we can legally, you know, you've testified. We have witnesses to the fact that this property belongs to the other person. We'll get that property to the other person, but we don't have to, uh, you know, prosecute prosecute you to the full extent of the law. And sometimes there's an even more radical case where one judge asks the the purported uh, thief, have you stolen? Say no. And says, say no, immediately on the heels of his question. Because at that point, you know, it's uh, not going to be, you know, if the person says no, no matter what anybody thinks or doubts, then there's not enough testimony to, to prosecute her. Um, so there are these funny cases that that get at the heart of this tension of how do you make sure that we're not prosecuting somebody when, when nobody... Um, wants that individual prosecuted while still or while still i guess upholding the systemic justice that we want to see and and also the the justice for the victims obviously this this isn't a perfect parallel to the amber geiger case many in the family did want amber geiger prosecuted but there are other cases in american law where there are times like mass incarceration is is an excellent example of this there are times when 
people are committing crimes that nobody thinks this person should go to prison for, for this long at least. Um, but somehow society, because of the laws on the books, we still, the legal system still feels obligated to prosecute them according to the law on the books, even if the victims and the family of the victims are in victimless crimes, uh, it's much harder to see who has an interest, but even in crimes with victims, you know, family of the victims are saying, we forgive them, like, it's fine, we don't have to prosecute them. But victim impact statements in, in American law only go so far, they don't completely erase a law and prosecutorial discretion exists, but it also only goes so far. Sometimes a prosecutor just, you know, has already started prosecuting and, and that the case goes how it goes. So we have cases in American law where People are in prison who no individual in the society thinks or wants to be in prison. And that Islamic law had ways to avoid that um, and avoided it quite actively, arguably too radically and too far in the other direction, which would be surprising because most people think of Islamic laws as too strict when that's absolutely historically um, and doctrinally not true. And what I mean by historically is the there was actually the opposite concern. I also mentioned this in the article. About 200 years ago, the, the British colonialists in South Asia complained that Islamic law was way too lenient, that murderers were constantly getting off the hook because victims' families were forgiving them um, and um, because there was almost too much social reconciliation and, and, and too much forgiveness and not enough punishment. And um, so British colonial leaders actually wrote what they call the Anglo-Mohammedan Code to essentially fashion Islamic law in a more penal Western legal image. So they're, they're, it's, a, it's a funny way that our perceptions of Islamic law today don't even map onto, you know, Western perceptions of Islamic law 100, 200 years ago. Thank you. Before we move on, I was wondering if you could, if you, were, if you wanted to say anything about other interests you have. I remember reading in, in the articles about your new position that you're also interested in, um, in criminal justice reform and refugee issues. And I guess the issue of criminal justice uh, came to my mind because this is, of course, a big issue in the American legal context, but also for the Muslim community as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been very passionate about criminal justice since high school, really. I mean, in sort of cheesy, but when when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X um, as a young Muslim coming of age and a young person of color, um, that was that was a transformative moment for me, and. Um, I knew also in here in Los Angeles, some friends of mine who, whose families at least had been affected by uh, mass incarceration. And then continued with that in undergraduate. I took a few classes related to it. I did an internship with the ACLU. I, um, I actually volunteered in a uh, prison in the Boston area, sort of um, as a, you know, as a friend of a couple of um, incarcerated people there and would, would go visit them um, every once in a while and, and write to them. So it's always been close to my heart. Um, and as you say, quite rightly, I think, Maryam, it's also a very, you know, an issue that, that's very close to the Muslim community. Islam is also a major phenomenon in American prisons. Many uh, incarcerated people convert to Islam in prison and many prisoners' rights cases, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court doctrine on, on prison law and, and prisoners' rights is, for the most part, actually uh, results from many Muslims incarcerated advocating for, you know, various protections and rights. You know, there's a very proud tradition of essentially black Muslim prisoners fighting for their rights in prisons. So it's, it's close to my heart in, in a number of ways and just for the simple human fact of, of justice and the, the tragedy of so many years of people's lives 
uh, being taken from them and, and from their families. So I'm, I'm trying to find, you know, how that um, will be a part of my work going forward. I, I hope it, it always is. And this also is, you know, not everything has to be wrapped up in a pretty little bow. I don't think my academic work on Islamic law is directly um, relevant to my passion for criminal justice reform. I think in some ways it is actually because Islamic law has radically different notions of criminality and, and criminal justice and criminal punishment um, that can have us rethink even just long bouts of incarceration as a punishment. But beyond that, that sort of philosophical, you know, criminology topic, I just want to be involved in a day-to-day level in my local society and try to make change uh, in a in a very local and, and marginal way by remaining connected to the invisible that live around me, whether that's the homeless, the refugees, or those that are in a prison only a few miles away that we never see because they're locked up there. So uh, we're going to uh, switch gears here a little bit and go back to um, a discussion of your your uh, academic work at, at Oxford um, and your dissertation. If you could talk a little bit about Istisan, if you could explain what it is, uh, for those of us who don't know, and its role in the development of, of Hanafism, um, and and how uh, how is Istisan... Um, used, or how do you use it rather in your study uh, to challenge any sort of common perceptions in earliest, in, in its role in early uh, Hanafism? Istihsan literally means um, to seek what's good, um, you know, seeking what's, what's um, beautiful, you could say. And it was a term used by early judges uh, in 8th century and 9th century Iraq, and then throughout the Hanafi tradition after that mostly, to connote what you could call juristic preference or you know a juristic choice, a judicial choice to choose one ruling over another. And that's commonly uh, been associated with cases of sort of practicality, when it would just be impractical, impractical to stick to the letter of the law and the, the legally technically obligated, uh, obligatory or correct solution for something, um, to use this sort of juristic preference to say, well, actually, this other law may be more appropriate or maybe better. So a very easy example of this is, for example, um, if you have a well, like a, a well of water, that um, some kind of impurity falls into, you know, animal feces or something, uh, or an animal dies in the well. Uh, technically, that makes the whole well impure. Um, you know, you shouldn't be able to drink that water anymore, both on a hygienic level, but also a religious level. But the question is, after you remove the animal and sort of clean things up, is the water really still ritually impure such that we can't, you know, drink it and use it for uh, ablutions and, you know, shower in it and, and so on and so forth? Technically speaking, yes, because you never were able to remove all the water and purify the entire well and put the water back in. You, you just can't do that for a well. So practically, it probably makes the most sense to come up with, uh, you know, a, a, a solution. And the solution is, and that's, you know, it's been reported by the earliest figures of Islam and therefore became sort of the legal solution, was to take out some nominal number of buckets from the well, three, seven, ten buckets of water from the well, and then you declare the well clean, even though that, that clearly didn't, you know, technically clean the entire well. That seems like a very technical and small example, but it quickly has big implications. You get into cases where it's essentially the feeling of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. It's, a, you know, the, the basic human civilizational legal question of 
what do you follow the law when you feel like the law is for some reason not best in this situation, either because it's achieving an unjust result or it just feels overly impractical or technical, uh, or it's, you know, actually opening a huge legal loophole for, uh, you know, achieving some evil ends through nominally legal means. And this is the big debate that um, I found early legal scholars to be having in this time over this usage of istihsan, of juristic preference. So I think I've described a little of why it's such a core question. You know, in American law, you could call it the absurdity doctrine. There's there's cases where we just say this, this result is absurd. And therefore, you know, you never, for example, there's a famous case where a, a grandson kills his grandfather, but there's no technical reason why if he's named in the grandfather's will, he shouldn't be able to inherit from his grandfather. We have There was no legal reason on the books yet. There was no statute written that said that a murderer cannot inherit from the person that they murdered. That obviously opens a huge legal loophole. And so courts in the early American years called that the absurdity doctrine. They said it would just be morally absurd to allow this to happen. It, it, and morally and even socially, it opens huge incentives, bad incentives for people to murder the people that they are bound to inherit from and not fear the, you know, they'll still get punished for the murder. They'll still go spend some years in prison, but there's nothing preventing them yet from receiving the money from the will. So um, in the early American years before statutes were written specifically on the topic, the judges just had to say, well, this is absurd. So we can't do that. That The ruling cannot be that. It's going to be something different. We're going to create a law essentially, which says that somebody who murders the person they're bound to inherit from cannot inherit from them. And you see some of this happening in Islamic law, where a judge just feels we're going to have to create a law here, or we're going to have to suspend a law here to to get at what's morally, practically, so on, um, you know, uh, socially optimal and ideal. This is clearly subjective, and it's clearly can get you into trouble at you know trying to justify what reasons are good enough for a human, especially in a religious law. What reasons are good enough for a human to decide? when to suspend God's law, when to either, you know, either put a pause on a religious law that does exist or to create a law where none exists. And this is the famous response from uh, a very important early Islamic legal thinker, a Shafi'i, who, you know, is, is one of, if not the most prominent uh, Islamic legal thinker of, uh, in Islamic history, famously declared istihsan impermissible, haram, categorically prohibited, sinful. Um, and says that it's clear that anybody who uses istihsan is is doing something impermissible. And this is this is really big because Abu Hanifa, the other huge legal scholar at the time, and his students, and the entire early Iraqi legal doctrine was filled with istihsan. And he said that this was all sinful. And specifically, he has another famous line where he says, anybody who's using istihsan, it's as if they're creating their own law, they're legislating, they're pretending they're God. He uses the word shara'a, which comes from sharia. It's the verb of it, which is to create sharia, to create a law. And he's saying you're, you're playing God by making these laws where none exist. So this is a very fundamental legal philosophical question that every legal tradition has faced. And, and I was really excited about getting to it in the Islamic legal tradition. And you could summarize my findings as saying that the early usage of istihsan was very much um, actively engaged in doing this kind of social weighing, um, jurists, not all the time. It, it's, I found about 500 or so rulings in the early Iraqi legal corpus out of tens of thousands. So it's not that many at all. Um, but they did do it in some cases, and uh, extreme cases especially. And 
I found that in the century or two afterwards, there was a big debate over, okay, what's the justification for this? You don't have a strict legal proof. You don't have a strict textual proof to support this. How does this hold up as a matter of legal theory? Which is, of course, something American law has, has always debated as well. And what I found was fascinating was there were uh, a group of people who didn't survive into orthodoxy, into the 10th and 11th uh, centuries of Islamic legal theory. And um, they were arguing that in the end of the day, we just have to say that sometimes judges, people, scholars who are well-learned enough, who, have, who are you know pious and have studied so much, can sometimes make law um, out of practical necessity or without evidence. This was extremely controversial, didn't survive into orthodoxy, but I was just intrigued by that historical fact of finding this school of early Iraqis, probably uh, from the city of Basra, who over the course of 100, 150 years, were putting forward many different legal, logical, textual arguments for why there should be certain scholars, certain figures, who we allow to make law without any textual evidence, without any logical evidence. Um, and it was, it was just, you know, it's exciting to find, I think, uh, this whole almost methodology, legal school, that uh, that ended up dying out, and I'm, I'm, you know, the historical narrative there is tough. I'm trying to find out, okay, where exactly were they? Who exactly were they? What books were they writing? But I think I've done enough in the dissertation to show that they existed and and to find their arguments uh, quoted in many different texts. It would be great to hear more about um, uh, your analysis of uh, Kitab al Asl by Muhammad al Shaybani. Um, and how you went about analyzing the use of istihsan by the Hanafi founders and what you found. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that was sort of the first part, you could say, of my dissertation, the first few chapters. Um, definitely the most time-consuming. Because what I did was, as you said, I, I looked at the Kitab al-Asl of Muhammad al-Shaybani. Muhammad al-Shaybani is one of the two prominent disciples of Abu Hanifa. Uh, so one of the three forefathers, you could say, of the Hanafi school of law which is now, you know, one of probably the most, if not uh, second most prominent Islamic school of law and was the school of law of the Ottoman Empire and, and so on and the Mughal Empire in India. So the fact that, you know, this is in the core of Hanafi doctrine, uh, it makes it very important. So the Kitab al-Asl is probably the earliest, you could say, complete legal treatise that we have of Islamic law in the sense that it covers, you know, traditional Islamic law texts that arise one or two centuries later have, you know, a chapter for each topic and they're really very comprehensive and they cover rulings on all types of things. And it goes from, you know, traditionally it starts with ritual purity, so how you make your ablutions and wash for prayer through the, you know, the, the worship sections, then through the transactional sections, business contracts, uh, marriage, things like that. Um, so this is probably the first text that we have that, that of that scale, of that comprehensive nature. And I went through it to find every ruling that I could of istihsan. Luckily, we have digital tools available now, and I had a word that I could use to find it. So it was quite literally, you know, searching 30 different variations of the word istihsan uh, and finding what well, in, in the end was about 550 rulings um, out of tens of thousands of them in this book that explicitly use istihsan. And then what I tried to do was categorize the types of reasoning that would go into that istihsan. Because like we said, istihsan just means the departure from what you think is the technically derived, objectively derived legal ruling 
to another legal ruling. And you can do that departure for any number of reasons. We already mentioned, you know, different distinct ones, practicality, uh, avoiding a legal loophole. You know, there, there are reasons that are not all the same why you would depart from one ruling to another. And I found about 70 or so different reasons used, some of them much more often than others. So, you know, something like, there's one, for example, precaution. There's a legal ruling, um, you know, you technically no longer should be obligated to pray that prayer, but out of precaution, we are going to use istihsan, juristic preference, to say you are still required to pray that prayer as a matter of precaution in the school, but even though it's precaution, we're saying it's actually obligatory, religiously obligatory. And there are about 20 cases of that. There's another one that I, I like to call decorum, where technically speaking, something should be legal, but because it doesn't look good, uh, we're going to say that it's not legal. So for example, you technically speaking should be able to pray a funeral prayer while sitting or while actually riding on an animal. Uh, and that's because for any non-obligatory prayer, any prayer that's not one of the five daily prayers, uh, you have you you are uh, you have the option to pray that sitting or to pray it right like while traveling, riding on an animal, or in, you know in modern world it would be while in your car or in an airplane, and not doing you know not standing up and doing the full motions uh, for a, for a non-obligatory prayer. So the analogy goes that if the funeral prayer is a non-obligatory prayer, prayer, you know it's obligatory that somebody pray the funeral prayer, but it's not obligatory that you pray it for everybody who dies. Then you should also have the choice to pray it sitting or. Uh, or or um, writing on an animal, just like any other optional prayer. And they say, technically speaking, yes, but it's not a good, you know, it's not good etiquette. It's not a good look for people to be praying the funeral prayer, uh, sitting on animals or sitting down on the ground and, you know, not giving it its due respect. And they use the word ugly um, to describe it. Klabir. They use, they say that it's it's not seemly. It's unseemly. So again, these are examples where you can see why a chef or e-coming a few decades later is going to say, who are you to say, like, who, is you, who are you to decide what's unseemly and what's not unseemly? Um, and that's where the subjectivity comes in. So that was my methodology. And, I, you know, I went through it to categorize it into all these different types of reasoning. And then I had other side metrics that I was very interested in. So I was very interested in when the ruling is attributed to a particular scholar. So often to Abu Hanifa or to Abu Yusuf or to a Shebani, his others, and then sometimes to others as well. Could we pick out trends over how certain scholars would use it uh, and how other scholars would use it differently? And indeed, I find, I think quite convincingly, that the sort of stereotypical narrative that Abu Hanifa was more willing to use istihsan in a seemingly subjective and problematic way, and that over time, through Abu Yusuf and then through Ashebani, who comes latest, the seemingly problematic or subjective uses decrease, and the ones that are more inspired by uh, strict textual evidences uh, and so on increase, um, I found that that actually bore out numerically, at least in, in my numbers. Yeah, it was interesting to read about how, um, well, istihsan is often thought to lead to more of lenient rulings, that one might not necessarily be the case, and that what we might, uh, what was considered lenience was not necessarily what we would be, what we would consider to be good today. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's sort of an, one of the discrete arguments that I make in the dissertation is istihsan is usually associated with lenience, but it's not always lenience. It's actually often stringency. Um, and the case that I mentioned of precaution or of decorum are good examples of that, where 
you should be able to do this, but we are actually going to say that you're not able to. Or you shouldn't have to do this, but we're actually going to say that you have to. Um, and those are the cases that Ashefri, I think, was most concerned about. And that bears out in his criticisms. He writes very long criticisms, critiques of Estersen that I also get into in the dissertation. And it's clear that his critiques are angled specifically around when people are, you could say, overstepping the bounds of the law by creating new laws where there weren't there weren't laws before or by suspending laws that exist. And the so, you know, lenience is a is a much more prominent category and sort of easier to intellectualize because you can think about cases where, you know, a law shouldn't apply literally in every single case. I mean, we, we just know that from our own personal lives. You know, if you're, the, the most obvious example is, you know, if you're in a medical emergency, you can speed. Nobody thinks that the speed limit should still apply. You can call, and that's, you know, feels like lenience. It feels like we're going to put this law on pause because of a clearly more important priority um, that's happening here. Um, but those aren't all spelled out in religious scripture. So what priorities count? We're going to have to end up making human decisions about what our human priorities are. And that's what I found really fascinating about going through these rulings is you start to piece together a vision of these jurists' social priorities, a vision of what they find is important enough to justify breaking the law uh, or changing the law. And not just important enough, but also you know, intuitions that they have that we might not share anymore. And obviously what the jurists are thinking is not necessarily reflective of what everybody else in society is thinking, but at least we're able to piece something together from one party of people. Um, and, and we can try through that maybe to do that for others as well. You've touched on this at uh, various uh, points during our conversation today, but uh, just sort of moving to later Islamic history, how did later Hanafis distance themselves from the notion of uh, istihsan as subjective? Uh, and mm. why, why did they do that? It's interesting. This relates to what I was saying about some of the arguments that I discussed not even surviving into orthodoxy. Classical Hanafism you know, starts in the 10th and 11th centuries. And even by then, the earliest works of, of Hanafi legal theory that we know of are distancing themselves from subjective notions of istihsan. Their argument is that a Shafiri in his criticisms of Istersen misunderstood it, that it didn't mean this type of subjectivity uh, that he's criticizing, that it just meant departure from one ruling to another ruling that is also analogically derived through, you know, accepted methods of legal derivation. What I find in my analysis is that while it's true that that's actually the, the most common method, the using an you know analogy qiyas in the arabic using an alternative analogy to come to a different ruling and calling that istihsan because you're departing from one analogy to another that is the most common but it's only 80 of 550 and the others some of them you could classify as conventional as well like obedience to a a hadith of the prophet um a practice of the prophet not all of the prophet's practices are going to be analogically you know, perfectly analogically consistent. So you should obey a hadith sometimes over what you think is the analogical derivation of another ruling. So there are some that you could say are, yes, still conventional legal processes, but I think there's, that's another maybe 20, there's, there's 400 left that you still have to deal with as quite apparently subjective. The classical Hanafis, you know, really do get into, you could say, semantic debates about what istihsan means. Did it really connote subjectivity? Did it really connote a scholar's ability to make a law without evidence, which is a reported early definition of istihsan given by Abu Hanifa himself, but very reported 
um, you know, it's not clear. I, we haven't found it in any writing, so we're not sure how, how concrete that is. But they were, you know, at this point when no legal theory, you know, there's no legal theoretical uh, body, you know, of jurisprudence that has found a way to incorporate our intuitions of morality and justice. They're just so amorphous and so fluid that, you know, this is something American law struggles with. The traditional struggle between positive, yeah, what you could call um, positive law and natural law, positivism and natural law, is a very traditional debate. And, you know, arguably now positivism has has prevailed because um, it's it's just so hard to think of where do we find our natural law? What is in, What does an objective human natural law look like that isn't subjectively shaped by, you know, by our own time and place and our own circumstance. And so the debates that end up happening in Islamic law are very similar. You, you kind of had a natural law versus positive law debate, Shafi'i being the positivist, the early Hanafis being the nat- natural law, natural lawyers, and the positivists winning, uh, and legal theory, the entire field of Islamic legal theory, of usul fiqh, being based on the premises that all of law must be objectively derivable. Otherwise, how can you call it law? Otherwise, how can you know? How can you have fifty different rulings in different places? How can that be a coherent body of law, um, or, or even in the same place by fifty different people all saying this is, um, you know, this is just what I think is better, and this is what I think is better? At the very least, we can come to different conclusions by citing evidence and by arguing over evidence and, and rational argumentation and logic. Um, but doing it just based on what we feel is right um, seems like a, you know a, a much bigger step that. I don't know of any legal theory, uh, school of legal theory in Islamic law or otherwise, that has wholeheartedly embraced that, except for what I was mentioning, which is this invisible group of uh, Iraqis in Basra for about 100 or 150 years that, that didn't survive into classical orthodoxy. And I'm sure there are many, um, many others, but they, they never really form the mainstay of a legal tradition uh, in Islamic law or, or others. And I think, you know, the classical Hanafis ultimately had to find a way to reconcile their early doctrine uh, with that um, that theory and with a more objective legal theory. And that's where you get into questions of what's the relationship between legal theory and, and legal doctrine, positive law. Are the rules really created by the legal theory or in the most radical and, and reconstructive notion, or is the theory just post hoc justification of all these rules that already exist? I think as with all things, the truth lies uh, somewhere in the middle. And... Um, yeah, it's 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 just a fundamental question of of lawmaking, of legal philosophy and jurisprudence, which is why I find it so fascinating. Because the same debates that are happening in ninth, tenth century Iraq, and the same the same confrontations and revisionism that the classical Hanafis have to engage in and think about uh, are are the same things that we've had to do in American law in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. How did the Hanafis and jurists of other schools, if you want to touch on that, deal with changing social, economic, and political realities? theoretically and pragmatically. In my, um, I guess, the towards the end of the dissertation, I discuss this example of how jurists adjusted to Islamic political decline. In the 9th and 10th centuries was the decline of the Abbasid Empire um, by the, you know, slowly and slowly the conquests of the Central Asians. Um, and... In that process, you see the transformation of, at least in the Hanafi school, a specific ruling about how scholars should earn their livelihood. In the original Hanafi doctrine, it was impermissible for a scholar to charge money for teaching. 
it was just, you know, seen as um, charging money for an act of, of worship and piety and that that was an impermissible mixing of, uh, of worldly and, uh, and um, otherworldly intentions. But again, they, and they called this istihsan, which is one of the reasons why istihsan drew my attention as, you know, relevant to the debate of how Islamic law changes. They said that, you know, a century or two later, the istihsan position of the later Hanafis became that, you know, now it's actually permissible for scholars to accept money for teaching religious knowledge. And then over time, even more things were included for teaching, for serving as the Qur'an reciter in a mosque, for serving as the uh, adhan reciter, you know, call to prayer uh, reciter in a mosque. Um, those, they, they now started to permit scholars to earn money for those jobs. And the justifications that they're giving are very much tied to social realities. They cite Abbasid decline and say that, you know, in the earlier years, essentially in the years of the Abbasid heyday, scholars received stipends from the treasury without strings attached. They didn't have to teach to get, they were being supported by patrons, you know, similar to the, the patrons in Italy that supported Leonardo da Vinci and the others. Uh, sometimes they were paying them for works that they were creating, but other times they were just giving them yearly money to be part of their court and to produce what they were producing, you know, just a, a salary, a stipend. And the, uh, the Hanafi scholars say, you know, in the early years, that's how Hanafi scholars were surviving. Um, but due to Abbasid decline, like, you know, uh, they say specifically the payments from the treasury have been cut off. And they say that um, there's constant vying. You know, there was a lot of regime change happening, especially in the outer Hanafi, the outer Abbasid lands into Central Asia, you know, modern day Afghanistan and so on. There were, there were constant, you know, cities were changing hands between different political you know, uh, prince, you know, princely states and so on. Even though the Abbasids were still nominally in control, there were sort of different sovereigns, different governors coming in and out constantly. And so they were saying there was just so much back and forth and who would be in favor one year and then out of favor the next and who would get a stipend one year and not a, not a stipend the next, that, you know, income streams were just extremely unstable. So because of that uh, and recognizing that if, you know, scholars can't make a livelihood, they're going to have to start stop being scholars. There's not an incentive for young people to become scholars because they don't have a financial livelihood. Scholars aren't going to have time to teach. Because of all these practical reasons, we're going to have to allow scholars to take money uh, to teach so that they can teach and so that we can have scholars, you know, still practice as scholars. And that's just one nominal example of um, what I think is just a really fascinating social change. And they didn't at all reinterpret the original legal texts that they had, or the religious texts that they had originally based the ruling on. They justified it as a matter of, of social reality. You can see that that reasoning is extremely relevant to debates that happen today. You know, the early 20th century was very famous for debates among Muslims about financial interest, saying that, you know, we are economically inferior to the West if we don't start participating in Western economies with financial interest, you know, uh, using loans to really kickstart our economies. If we don't do this, we will remain perpetually inferior to the West. The Islamic world will stay in a state of decline and Muslims themselves will suffer economically. And, you know, the, those greater social changes and needs justify this, you know, a change in the law. So it's the same style of argument. And then you get to the same question at the end of the day. You know, this is a matter of, uh, of really uh, difficult subjectivity. Who's to decide when a necessity is great enough to justify changing the law? And... Ultimately, we might end up having to just, you know, to trust scholars' intuitions, whatever that might be. And that's precisely why those early Iraqis were, Iraqis were arguing, sometimes a scholar just has to be able to make law without citing evidence. 
because they have to be able to make these kinds of decisions. And maybe we have certain leaders who just know the law well enough and are well in, you know, in touch with the ethics of the religion and so on, and just have spent their whole life studying this. At some point, maybe somebody gains a status where they have the intuition and the knowledge and the experience to try to make these difficult calls. And can we agree upon a class of people for whom that applies? I think that's what the early Iraqis were saying. And that's a type of argument that I think is, is extremely important and relevant for modern Muslims to think about. Who do we trust or what are our ideal, you could say, qualifications and what are our ideal um, you know, uh, metrics for who we decide, uh, who we allow to, to make these types of decisions? And they, they're certainly not always going to agree, but maybe we can at least have, you know, a certain set of people that we think of as valid participants in this debate. And it's very interesting, okay, if we were to write a list of what those qualifications would be for a person, many Muslims across the world would come up with many different types of qualifications and lists uh, and implicating many different social dynamics, racial dynamics, gender dynamics. But I think that's why um, I was so interested in this topic, because it, it really makes us think about who are our leaders today. Yeah, you you answered my last question here. You know, I mean that this is it's the qualifications of what what makes the the someone an authority uh, is 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 not only relevant, I think, in in Islamic societies, but uh, around the world, right? Um, so yeah. you know, just thinking a little bit, you know, a little uh, more about this uh, on your your research on istisan in the formative period of Islamic law. I mean, how you know authority, but, uh, you know, how else does this sort of resonate in contemporary Islamic legal debates? I think there is this basic dynamic that always occurs in any Muslim community, whether it's intellectual or social debate, where there are appeals to tradition always being made. You know, our tradition um, changed in response to social realities. You know, flexibility is part of the tradition. So everybody, or, you know, on the opposite, our, our tradition has always, like, this has always been the ruling of this tradition. So this different ruling that's coming up today is clearly aberrant. So all parties, you could say, across the spectrum are appealing to tradition and trying to demonstrate that, you know, their methodology and their process of, of, of decision making is consistent with various aspects of our tradition. And what I think is really fascinating about getting into these debates in the formative period, is at least drawing uh, a line from participants in those early debates to their equivalent participants in today's debates. There was a huge range of disagreement, but can we link the parties that existed then to the parties that exist now in terms of their general, you could say, methodology, outlook, you know, how, what they're advocating for and so on, versus which parties today really have no uh, early cognate. And I think when we have these disagreements and debates, we often, you know, people make almost exclusive claims to tradition and say, this is our tradition. And I'm trying, hopefully, to say, here's the range of voices in the tradition. Let's draw lines to the range of voices we have today. And we can still say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm quite, uh, you know, willing to say, like, I don't think Islam means everything. Some things are right and some things, like, there are right and wrong answers. So some voices might not, you know, some modern voices might not have traditional cognates, but at least we have a, a better sense of, you know, what those voices are and what those are not and understand how those early parties engaged with each other and debated with each other uh, so we can understand how parties today are echoing some of the same debates and in, in some sense, 
we can we sometimes repeat history. We have the same debates in different terms over over different like concrete rulings and issues, um, but you know facing ultimately the same moral uh, and legal questions and philosophical questions. Like for example, this one about in the end of the day, who do we trust to make this decision, and who are the people that should be engaging in this debate? So I guess to close out, it would be great to hear about any future research plans you have or just otherwise, um, if you'd like to share what you hope to do next. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still uh, halfway through law school now, so a little more than half, luckily. So, you know, a year and some left. And I'm continuing for now with the law review work is taking up most of my time. It's basically a full-time job, which has been so exciting and, and thrilling. Um, and then pursuing my classes, I'm, you know, I, I have budding interests in environmental law. I care deeply about climate justice and, and the future of the planet. So I'm hoping to pursue that further. Again, I still care, care deeply about criminal justice and, um, and refugee law. Uh, I also have, as I mentioned a bit in the beginning, an interest in property law, so in just for historical reasons, so maybe more academic, I want to pursue that a little further. Otherwise, I, I think I want to gain some solid litigation experience. I want to be able to be an advocate as well as a, you know, as well as a thinker, uh, if, I, if I am a thinker, and, and I don't want to be writing books that not many people end up reading <laughs> for my whole life, unfortunately. It's the the sad state is academia has always been a strange creature. It has tremendous impact, but, you know, it's always unclear how many people are reading an individual book, but somehow the whole scope of academia has a profound impact on the shape of the world. So I don't discount the value of academic work, but maybe for selfish reasons, I want to feel like I'm also sometimes in the trenches, you know, helping people that need to be helped um, and seeing, you know, it's so wonderful about legal writing and, and legal advocacy is in the end of the day, you, you write what you think is a really sometimes intellectually fulfilling piece of work with really rigorous research. And, you know, the, theoretically, the judge has to read it and, and make a decision based upon it. It doesn't just sort of go into the publication ether. So um, that, that's exciting to me. And, and I want to try to make a difference through, uh, through my work and, and, and through my research. And I want to probably spend a few years after law school doing some kind of public interest lawyering uh, and, and, and learn those skills. That was our interview with Hassan Shahawi, second-year law student at Harvard Law School and president of the Harvard Law Review. Please join us for future episodes of Harvard Islamica to learn more about developments in Islamic studies across Harvard University and beyond. I'm Mariam Kazmi. Thanks for listening.